on today's episode, how to return to speed and hills following injury with Matthew Boyd. Welcome to the podcast, helping you train, rehab and run smarter. When I first started running in my 20s, I knew it would be something I'd be passionate about for the rest of my life. But unfortunately, developing injury after injury disrupted my progress and left me undertrained at the start line on race day. Even with my knowledge as a physio, I still fell victim to the vicious injury cycle and when searching for answers, struggled to decipher between common running myths and evidence-based guidance. That's what this podcast is here to help you with. So join me as a Run Smarter Scholar and let's break the injury cycle by raising your running IQ and achieving running feats you never thought possible. Some small wins here. Uh, Today was the first time I've been for a a run in about four weeks. Uh, Little Mackenzie's one month old now and she's just beside me making some mumbles and noises. So apologies if if she disrupts us too much. The, yeah, I had enough sleep last night and I woke up at a reasonable time and I'm like, you know what, let's go for a run and good to be back out there. Good to get some fresh air even as cold as it might be, but um, like I said, first time in four weeks. So I'll, I'll take that. Hopefully we can carry some momentum from there. I have been doing some gym workouts, uh, one of which had Mackenzie strapped to my chest while I did some now like weighted exercises, kind of like with a weighted vest. And yeah, let's uh, welcome our new patrons for that have signed up for the last week. So uh, welcome Lindy Wilson and Laura Smith, who have signed up for the honors tier and you might have seen on social media last week um the patron episode that i released was a research review looking at carbon fiber plates carbon fiber plate shoes and whether there's an increased risk of navicular stress fractures and go, going through like the signs symptoms the links the biomechanical changes and how to be how to approach it if you do have carbon fiber shoes. Uh, so once a month with that research review um, gets released to PhD patrons and above, so the tenure tier as well. And the paper is available to them as well. So they get the free access to, to that paper if those if you are sort of research inclined. And I know a lot of listeners here are very heavy on the research side of things. That's why the podcast exists. Um, so if that does interest you, the patron tiers are available. Um, and if you do sign up for the top tier, you get a second podcast episode apart on top of this main feed once a week. You also get a patron episode once a week as well, along with all the other benefits that go along with it. So um, the link is in the description if you want to learn what the tiers are and all those benefits. Um, also regular chats with me. We can jump on 20-minute chats. Um, so Jump on if you're interested. Um, if you have any questions, let me know. Today we have uh, Matthew Boyd, who hosts the Adaptive Zone podcast, a lovely podcast that I've listened to, and I'll talk about it a bit more in this interview, but just really resonates with me. Um, straight away sort of got Matthew and his um, approach to treating athletes, and we sort of had a brainstorming session as to what might be a good topic and we sort of just bounce ideas off each other on today's episode it's a a bit less of a interviewer interviewee style and more of a just collaborative what are your ideas what are your thoughts and bouncing ideas off each other 
And so we answer some patron questions. We dive into um, risks of injuries, risks of re-injuries, how to return safely when it comes to these parameters of your training. And I think if, if you are injured or not, it's a great conversation to listen to. So hope you enjoy. Matthew Boyd, welcome to the Run Smarter podcast. Hey, Brody. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I um, am excited to dive into today's topic. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with you and your podcast and everything else, would you mind giving a brief intro? Yeah. So my name is Matthew Boyd. I'm a physiotherapist and a running coach, and I'm the founder of Pinnacle Rehabilitation and Performance. And we uh, specialize in helping injured runners get back to full training and, you know, smashing their PRs and all that kind of stuff. And I'm also the host of the Adaptive Zone podcast, which you were a guest on recently for a wonderful episode that I really enjoyed. And uh, I've been doing that for the last couple of years too. Yeah, uh, it's a great podcast. Like I uh, started listening to several episodes in preparation for me being on your podcast. And I'm like, this guy's spot on with a lot of the stuff he's saying. Um, You know, it only takes a couple of episodes to really know or resonate with that like you sort of get it you sort of understand okay this guy's on the same page i'm on um and it's you know you can tell that you've put in the work you can tell that you've put like any biases aside just focusing on research and um you know what you come across day to day instead of just following like fads and that sort of stuff so excellent to see and that's why i decided to like i have to have matthew onto the podcast to discuss some things and i think the topic that we've chose is really great um also i should mention like the type of guests that you have on i'm like scrolling through your feed and looking at um some of these guests i'm like man spot on spot on um and so i had to keep listening to a whole bunch of episodes so i highly recommend that uh, that you guys listening um to go check out the adaptive zone podcast but yeah i've got some topics around returning to hills and speed following injury i was going to do like following tendinopathy but I think if we just open it up to a bit more injury focus I think it'd be a lot more relatable and um, cover a few things that might not have been on the that first iteration so I thought to kick us off just to help people understand the mechanics or you know what's entailed when it comes to hills and when it comes to speed uh, what particular injuries or what they might be susceptible to when it comes to that and they'll We'll have a bit of a back and forth and see what we both think on this topic. But um, if I was to ask you to start with, uh, maybe we'll talk about hills to start with. Is there any particular injuries that you see are more susceptible when it comes to introducing hills? So are we thinking more like hilly terrain? So like trail runners who do a lot of elevation change or hill sprints as a sort of workout for road runners? Let's do both. Let's start with trail Trail hills, let's see, um, and we'll, we'll probably expand from there. In my experience with the trail runners, one of the things they have trouble with, uh, because they are the runners who do a lot of downhill running, whereas most run, road runners don't do that much, especially if they don't live in a hilly area, which uh, cities and towns usually aren't like excessively hilly, like trails will be. So they'll do more downhill and typically downhill will make up less like time that a runner spends running just because it doesn't take as long to go down a hill as to go up a hill. So it's the downhill specific injuries that you see a little more in the trail runners in my experience. And that for me 
the first one that springs to mind would be IT band. So iliotibial band um, syndrome, pain, is particularly provoked by downhill running. And for that reason, I believe is a bit more common in the trail running community, uh, particularly the ultra distance trail running community. So, and then the other one for the downhill would be the patellofemoral pain really doesn't seem to like downhill too. So that's for the listener, that's pain on the back of your kneecap, often called runner's knee, which is a bit of an umbrella term. So patellofemoral pain and IT band pain are the, the downhill ones. And like I say, I see them a bit more in the, in the trail runners. Yeah, I totally agree. As soon as I think downhill, um, or as soon as I see someone who has pain on the outside of their knees seems to be around what ITB pain would be, I ask like any changes in terrain, any changes in um, hills and those sorts of things. And people need to understand, I suppose, like around this whole topic, uh, the accumulation of load and the demand on the body is kind of two main phases. Like one is when you first make contact with the ground and your body has to absorb and take all of that load and kind of absorb the load. And, you know, that whole stance phase when the body's taking on all of that is quite excessive. You know, that's where research will say certain parts, certain tendons, you know, accumulate five to six times your body weight and all that sort of stuff is just like the direct force of that. But then we have the propulsion phase which is your push off. And that's where a lot of the, um, you know, the things responsible for propelling you forward accumulates high load. So we're kind of doing those two things, I guess, hamstrings aside, because the hamstrings are probably during the swing phase. But if we're kind of simplifying things, when it comes to the downhill, the downhill, you're not propelling a lot. Hmm. You don't really need to push off. You kind of just need to actually control your descent depending on the, um, how aggressive the the decline is, but that loading phase, that initial making contact and working your way through that whole stance phase is really ramped up because you're going sort of against gravity. And um, that's where sort of knee pain can really, the loads through the knee can really start to accumulate more so than on flats. And, you know, usually on flats, researchers say say kind of two to three times your body weight but it just you can just imagine it just ramps up hitting the ground harder when you run downhill um, what's unique about the itb that what i've come to understand i'm pretty sure um this is where it is like not only are we absorbing greater loads as we hit the ground harder but the knee is bent a little bit more when you run downhill or it seems to be in a different position compared to on the flats and so you've got this kind of combination of um, increasing ITB strain uh, or increasing ITB load based on purely running downhill, but also the knee being in a slightly bent position to, to uh, I guess, the band being more taut. Would you, uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think we've all experienced like when it's a very steep hill and we're going down it, we almost feel like we're kind of doing this kind of strange flicky movement um, with our knees like really bent and we're kind of lowering ourselves down the hill. And I think that's what you're getting at, right? The, the biomechanics change when you are running downhill because you're you're. If you were to run in a normal way, the I call it the impact, right? That that absorption of the the ground reaction force when you hit the floor, it would be quite a lot higher because you're coming from a higher place. It's almost like you're jumping off a off a box or something, right? You're going down, so there's more potential energy there to be absorbed. So that 
like you said, that five times the body weight, maybe in certain parts of the leg, is going to be higher because you're going from a higher position to a lower one. And then because the biomechanics change, because you're not running in quite the same way, and I think you're right that the knee is flexed a little more. To me, what I think happens there is if you normally have this sort of five to 30 degree knee bend that you're using to absorb the impact, right? So to illustrate that for the listener, if you jump up in the air and just land with your knees dead straight, it feels awful. And if you just let your knees bend, you'll cushion the impact, right? So when you're running downhill, you you go to land and you've got your knee bent maybe five, 10 degrees, you bend it a bit more to get in position to absorb the impact. So then you're at like maybe 15, 20 degrees, but you're still going to stop bending it around kind of 30, 40. So you now have a smaller absorption arc. Does that make sense? So you're you're hitting the ground and by the time your knee has stopped bending, it's a shorter period of time. So now Mm. you have to absorb that force more quickly. And as we know, it's the it's the force times the time that you have to absorb it that is the trouble because that means that you can't do that kind of soft landing that you would do it's as if you jump up in the air and land with your knees straight because your knees don't have as much of a bend in them when you're going downhill and i don't have any good evidence for this but my (laughs) opinion is that that's one of the reasons that it band is so problematic is that you lose part of your bend to absorb the impact with when you're running downhill Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well explained. And I guess while we're on that topic as well, uh, ITB syndrome is like a repetition injury. It's like doing the same Mm. thing, the same mechanic over and over and over and over again. And a very common behavior would be, you know, sometimes you can start off pain-free or like really, really low symptoms. And the, the more continuous running you do, it just, uh, ramps up exponentially just like most people would say that like it's towards the end of the run where it feels worse or I get up to 15 minutes and then it just, the the one out of pain turns to a four or five out of 10 pain. It's just that repetition. But if we're talking about trails, I know this isn't hills, but um, if you're running trails and it's flat, um, sometimes that can be quite nice for the ITB if you are sort of negotiating that type of injury because the variability that you need to position your foot, sometimes it, not necessarily if it's a um, a single track where it's you have to run really narrow in your step width, but if you have a lot of variability where you're running around like tree roots or like dirt gravel and like you're sort of changing up your your foot position and it's less consistent, sometimes that can be quite nice because that repetition isn't there. Um, you talked about uh, trail runners when it comes to hills, and then you wanted to differentiate between you know like hill sprints and those sorts of things. So. Um, moving across to that, what type of injuries would we expect to see if someone ramps up too quickly? So when you're talking hill sprints or hill repeats, right? So it's these, you run up the hill, you jog back down or you walk back down, you do it again, right? Five, 10 times, whatever you're going to do. And that's more common I see in, in road runners, right? They're not doing as much actual downhill just because they don't do that many. They don't go on like, they don't do a three-hour hill repeat session the way a trail runner will go out for a three-hour run, right? So they, because they don't do as much, in my experience, those ITB issues are less common or less problematic, even if, like I had ITB pain recently and I had no trouble with my health because I just wasn't going down enough to provoke it. Mm-hmm. And running up, 
because as you say, we've got that sort of impact phase and then we've got the propulsive phase. It's the, with running uphill, especially if you're running fast, because you have to get yourself higher in the world, right? From one step to the next, it requires more propulsive force, especially if you're going to then do it quickly, which people often do with hills. So then you're looking at the structures that are put under more stress with that are then a little more vulnerable, which isn't to say that you shouldn't do it, but that if you're going to have a problem with hills sprints running up them, it's more likely to be like your Achilles tendon or the proximal hamstring tendon, I would say. So the Achilles tendon, because I think it's around 50% of our propulsive power when we run comes from our calf. So if we're having to get more of that, that's more stress going through the Achilles tendon. And with the proximal hamstring tendon, in my opinion, it's because of the the incline is meaning that your hip, right? So the angle between your thigh and your trunk or torso is is more bent. There's more of an angle between your trunk and your thigh, which where the proximal hamstring kind of wraps up and attaches to the sit bone there is going to increase the stress, especially the compressive stress, when you sort of first hit the ground and then try and push from that more flexed position to then push harder because you have to get yourself up for the next step. That increases the stress on the proximal hamstring tendon. So in my experience, it's those two with the uphill sprinting things. They're the, the ones that cause the issue. But I know that you know a lot about proximal hamstring. Is that your opinion? Does, is that ring true? It does ring true, definitely. Um, I would say uphill definitely puts people at, like if someone was symptom-free, um, no history of injuries, and then they were to do heels, uh, I would say the Achilles and the calf is sort of more susceptible to that than PHT, but definitely PHT would increase, just probably not as much as, the risk probably doesn't increase as much as calf and Achilles. Um, I would say running on the flats, um, like speed work on the flats seems to be, uh, pretty indicative of people developing um, proximal hamstring tendinopathy as well. Um, and then if you are managing PHT, returning to hills, you need to be very careful and returning to speed, you need to be very, very careful. Um, and to your point, yes, it's dealing with the tendon compression on your way up. But I think just running on the flats and doing speed work on the flats, there's not a lot of, not much more compression, but just the overall load on the hamstring itself as it has to really work eccentrically um, just seems to flare people up for whatever particular reason. Um, do, do you think that could be because they're running faster? So if you're doing sprints up a hill versus sprints on a flat, you're going to run faster on the flat? And do you think that might make it more provocative on the proximal hamstring tendon? Uh, possibly. I just, I, I see graphs of, you know, how hard a hamstring works when you increase speed and it it's exponential. Like if mm. you, um, if you look at a graph, you just see it skyrocket as soon as you increase your speed in, in sort of intervals to the point where you're getting to sprinting and it's just off the charts. And so, um, yeah, I think that it's probably a bit of both. It's a bit of speed and compression when it comes to hills. And then it's just a lot of speed and a lot of eccentric control. Mm. Um, because that's what we're talking about when it comes to looking at a graph and seeing where do muscles activate the most in your running cycle. It is just before your heel contacts the ground. That's when the hamstrings really spike. And that's because you're 
hamstring needs to eccentrically, uh, it needs to slow down the momentum of your swinging leg while mm. lengthening, while going from a bent position mid swing to a sort of somewhat straighter leg just before you make contact. So it's trying to grip and slow down the momentum while lengthening. So that's the you know definition of eccentric control. And the faster you run, the the harder and harder that task becomes for the hamstring. And so that's why you see this huge spike in in hamstrings, which you probably wouldn't get that degree of eccentric control or the, that rate of force when it comes to running uphills, but um, the compression is still there. So I guess it depends on where someone's vulnerability is. Is it compression or is it eccentric control? Because some people can be really good at Nordic drops, like their eccentric control is really, really good. But some people, they do weighted step-ups or they do the stepper machine for a cardio exercise and they really struggle with that. So I guess it depends where their vulnerabilities lie. Yeah, I mean, you can you can imagine that if you if I was to sprint now, I can I can imagine my thigh swinging through. It's going to swing a lot faster when I'm sprinting on the flat than it is if I'm going up a hill. So yeah. it's it's just the the actual speed. If you were to measure that thigh as it swings forward just before it stops and um, sort of lands to push you back, it's going to be much higher on the sprinting than the uphill running. But like you said, the uphill running adds a little bit more of a compression. So it really depends what's the more provocative factor for that particular person and their particular hamstring tendon problem. Yeah, I guess it's worth saying here that none of these things are bad. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Bad. None of these things are dangerous if you train sensibly. Like we do say there's an increased risk if you do it, but it's really low if your introduction is sensible, your progressions are gradual, which we'll talk about progressions later. But um, this is only really increasing your risk, really heightening your risk to the point where you should be worried if it is an abrupt change when you introduce heels or when you introduce speed. So just a um, bit of a caveat there. But to your point, like um, I wrote down exactly what you suggested for, for the hills, for the uh, downhills, I wrote ITB, I wrote knee pain. Um, I queried sort of lateral hip pain. I don't see it that often. I don't really see a lot of lateral hip pain for runners, but um, just based on the mechanics, you know, your glute med um, and glute muscles really need to work hard to stabilize your body when the impact is higher. But I just thought I'd, I put a question mark around it. Do you ever see that? Do you see that sort of connection? You know, I think you've hit on an excellent point for me. The the lateral hip pain for the listeners, pain on the side of your hip, right? And it's more, in my experience, a problem that occurs and happens to people. And some of those people run mm. rather than a running injury. And the things that, if you look at the risk factors for it, it's mostly about demographics, so um, female and age, so sort of um, menopausal, postmenopausal kind of age, and there's lots of reasons that it's more troublesome in that period and that particular demographic. And then those people, obviously, there's a lot of runners who fit that profile, 
some of them run and then they get hip pain with running too. Rather than in my experience, it's not, I took up running and then I got this lateral hip pain. That's my experience. Yeah. What about if um, someone, let's just say they are injured. Let's just say they uh, have to back off hills, back off speed. Um, how are we approaching their return to these type of things? Um, I had one of the patrons, Sandrine, she messaged, um, submitted a question, said she has plantar pain, um, which might be plantar fasciitis or similar. I'm not too sure, but she said plantar pain and asked when's it appropriate to introduce speed and hills. So maybe we dive into that. Yeah, I mean, it comes to a point that you talked about when we had you on my podcast with this is load versus capacity and and matching the two up. And I'm sure you listeners are familiar with that. So it's really not about a certain amount of time or being able to do a certain thing. It is trying to say, am I, do I have a level of capacity where I can do this thing again? So if we were to take the example of hill sprints, right? And you, you've got back to running. Right. So first and foremost, you, you want to be able to run some amount, let's say two or three times a week, run walks, 20 minutes, right? It's like you've got some a little bit of running capacity. And then there's really a judgment call to be made about when you introduce it. And for me, I, you know, you were saying we're not saying these things are bad. I view it exactly the opposite. Like, what's the thing you can't do? That's the thing we're going to do. Right, Because yeah. if we're going to make you more robust, we have to figure out how to build your capacity to that thing. So if you have a problem with hills, most of our time together is going to be working on that. That doesn't mean I'm going to throw as many hills as I can at you. But what it means is I have to establish how much can you do, like what's your baseline? Can you do zero hills? Can you walk up a hill? Can you walk up a hill with a pack on your back? Can you do that five times? Can you do that 10 times? Can you walk quickly up a hill? Can you jog up a hill? Right? How many times can you do that? So we're, we're going to experiment and see what happens with the pain. That's going to establish our baseline. And then our only job is to increase that capacity slowly and steadily week by week until it meets whatever you decide is good enough for you. Yeah. So the way we would do that is to, I use pain traffic lights, right? So green, I can feel it, but it's not so bad. I can ignore it. It doesn't really hurt afterwards. It goes away as soon as I stop. So let's say I do the hamstring, uh, the hills, and I've got pain in my butt where my proximal hamstring is. Like green light is like, ah, oh, no, it's there, but that's it. Red light is, okay, that makes me want to stop. Like I don't like this at all, right? You, you can't ignore it even if you wanted to. Maybe you can keep re- running, but you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't, right? And then the other thing about red light pain is like, it doesn't go away as soon as you stop. It hangs around. Maybe it's there the following morning when you wake up or each time you do your run that week, it's a little bit worse, right? I call all of that red light pain. And then, so red or orange light, light just, pain. So orange light pain is in between. So yeah. it's not so bad that you have to stop. It's not so bad that you really want to stop, but it's it's definitely there. You can feel it. And it's not like you have to pay attention to notice it. It's like it, that definitely hurts. But it's stable, right? So it's not getting worse the more you do, like very quickly. And when you stop, maybe it doesn't go away. It hangs around for half an hour, but it goes away 
back to the level it was, which is usually can't feel it with moving around activities of daily living for running injuries. And the next morning you get up, you're like, it's fine. I can do my, I could do that again if I wanted to. It'd be fine. So that's the orange light. And orange, I actually quite like most of the time because if I've got an injured runner and I can put them in that orange zone with those hills, let's say two times a week or one time, so depends how far along they are. I know that they should be able to adapt and do more of that thing, adapt to that stress without flaring up their pain as long as we monitor it closely. And that's, like I mentioned the name of my podcast, the adaptive zone, that's essentially what we're doing. The right amount of stress, not too much, not too little. And then how do we titrate the dosage? A lot, a little bit, depends where you're at. But that's why there's not a sort of specific answer I can give to that question. But it's more like, how do we expose you to the thing you can't do at a level that you can handle it, but that you just struggle to handle it? Yeah. I like to think of it as a rehab ladder. I often refer to it as a rehab ladder, which like, you know, you've got all these little rungs and the top of the ladder is the goal that you have. It might be hill sprints or, um, you know, you, however specific you want to be, but the bottom of that ladder is what you can now currently tolerate. And every rung along the way is just that little bit of progression. Like you say, it might be walking hills. It might be with a rucksack. It might be, you know, a walk, a walk up a hill and the thing about hills is there's a lot of variables it's like the duration the speed the incline you know what shoes you wear like there's a whole bunch of things that do go factor into it and so every little rung is just that next progression so i guess with sandrine's uh question to to answer that question um there's no there's no yes or no when it's ready to start when am i ready to start hills when am i ready to start speed it's uh what can you currently do and let's build up from there because you will be able to do something. I think um, you mentioned having some sort of baseline first two to three times running two to three times a week, maybe 20 minutes. Um, I know for a lot of my clients, I say continuous, continuous flat, slow running for about 40 minutes with falling within acceptable symptoms, falling within acceptable limits before I then can say, yes, okay, let's start getting faster or let's start doing some hills. And that's of no research whatsoever. I just told myself, all right, I just need to find a benchmark, have a consistent benchmark and see if that works for most and seems to work for most. Um, and so, yeah, it, I guess as you know, you can, adjust that rule to anyone i've just picked a number really um but 20 30 minutes seems reasonable um is there so if there is someone who says they haven't done any speed haven't done any hills they've just done flats they're running 30 to 40 minutes and they have a goal their goal is to introduce hills and speed what would you introduce first would you say okay let's do some um some flat faster running or let's do some hills which one would you like to introduce first if you were is this someone who you're helping overcome a rehabilitation like in that example or uh, sorry overcome an injury or is this someone who is basically healthy and just wants to do it in a sensible way someone who's injured when it's someone who's injured you really want to zoom in on like as you just broke it down like okay when's it time to do hills right I tried hills and I couldn't do them because it hurt. Okay, what did you do? Five times up the hill. How long did it take you each time? Or oh, about 30 seconds. 
And how hard were you running? Like 10 out of 10, fast as I could run, five out of 10, you know, comfortably hard, one out of 10, I was basically walking. And then you're, you're going to adjust all of those variables until you get a tolerable amount. So with the introduction of hills and speed, when you're working with someone who has what I call an active injury, meaning that they'll get green, orange, or red light pain, depending on what you do, you only want to add one thing at a time, in my experience. So you could pick, we're going to add hills, or we're going to add speed. But we're not going to do both in the same week. And we're not going to run fast up a hill, because that's two things. So we would take their baseline or their bottom rung of the ladder, and we would add one thing to that. So let's say we were just going to add hills, we would just do more, right? I can do five at the minute, let's get let's get you to 10. That's what we're going to work on the next couple of weeks. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds a lot safer just keeping to one variable and progressing that one variable at a time. I would say if I have a healthy runner, I'm not that cautious unless there's like a a specific reason to be like, they're just perpetually injured. But if, if I have a healthy runner, so me, like I'm pretty healthy at the minute, I'll, I'll add hill sprints to my program without worrying too much. And I'll just pay attention. If I start getting pain, then I'll then I might change things. But I wouldn't have quite such reservations with someone who is otherwise healthy. I think it's okay to add a couple of variables at a time, as long as you try and quantify that. So you wouldn't necessarily add, okay, we're going to do some hill sprints in this next four week block. I'm going to also increase my long run by 45 minutes, right? It's like, there's three things. That's quite a lot all at once. I know there'll be a few like examples and a lot of depends, but I'm going to throw like a scenario at you and we'll see like what you might suggest. So let's just say I have an Achilles, a mild Achilles tendinopathy, and every time I introduce speed, it flares up. So there's a, a, a vulnerability there, but I've done the right rehab. I'm now running 30 minutes on the flats, really slow, pain-free, um, but I'm really cautious to introduce speed. Uh, if you were to put on your physio hat and give me some advice, what would be my next step to introducing speed? Has that person been doing plyometric exercises aside from their running? No, <laughs> they've been doing their slow, heavy stuff. So they've been doing like yeah. slow, heavy eccentric stuff and just slow running. And that's all they've done. So again, it comes back to the, you know, we were saying we've, I like to laser focus on what's the problem? What's the thing you can't do? That's what we're going to do. So if that person, their problem is their lack of capacity is I I can't run fast. It's like, okay, well, that's what we've got to do. And we've got to make sure you do it frequently. And we've got to make sure you do it long term. So we're going to set that as our objective for the next four, eight weeks, whatever it's going to be. And then we want what I would do in that situation, because I think what happens a lot of the time is I remember there was a, there was a guy who used to run with at a running club in Ottawa and he wouldn't run, you know, when the camber of the sidewalk like goes down to his left, he would cross the road because his knee would hurt. And he, and I asked him how long he'd been doing that. He said like years and now he wasn't a client. So we were just chatting, but you can imagine what I would get him to do if he was to come and see me in the clinic, right? It's the thing that he won't do. The capacity that he doesn't have is what he needs to focus on. So 
for the sprint, for the running fast, what might have happened there, similar to that guy, I have no doubt that after several years, he can handle a bit of running with the camber going the other way. But he has a psychological barrier to that. And one of the ways we can get around that, because as I know you talk about on your podcast, there's a large psychological component to pain, is to expose the runner to the same mechanical, physiological stresses in a novel environment. So if running fast is this thing, it's like, that's the thing that causes my pain. So there's a fear that's developed a protective uh, behavioral mechanism. It's like, okay, well, how do we recreate those stresses in a different environment? So an obvious one would be in the gym doing plyometrics, lots of them. So we wouldn't start with lots of them, but we would, we might start with like, three sets of pogo jumps, bouncing on two legs, 20 reps, right? Just enough so we know that he's not going to have an issue. But then we might build that up to like loads, like skipping for 10 minutes and doing, you know, ABC drills and just like a a full like 20, 30 minutes of all of this bouncing around kind of stuff that is not quite, it's it's the, the same forces that he's experiencing, but it's not quite the same thing. So it doesn't trigger that protective response. And then we would try and slip in a bit of running. So we would get him to do those things. And like he might do a length of the skipping drill and run, you know, at three quarter pace back to where he started and then do it again. So we try and slip it in in a way that is not going to trigger that um, protective response. And through graded exposure, we can show his nervous system that he has the capacity to tolerate that type of stress again. And we know he actually does because we keep doing it and we're following that um, traffic light system to make sure that his pain doesn't flare up. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, And you're kind of like leading into another topic that I wanted to talk about, which um, sort of follows Laura, another patron. She had a question. She also has plantar heel pain and asked, are there any tests you can do to see if you know, introducing speed and introducing heels if it's acceptable or not. Um, So I think uh, what you just mentioned, like jump rope, skipping, jumping, that sort of stuff's uh, really good, particularly for those type of injuries that involve propulsion, like we talked about before, those calf Achilles stuff, because not only are you primarily using the calf Achilles and um, you're doing it in like a bounding plyometric type of really quick firing type of um, stimulus, which, you know, we obviously need for hills and for speed. We need that propulsion. Um, Is there anything else? Like if we were to look at tests to see, okay, give you the green light to at least introduce something. um, Is there anything else you can think of? In the clinic, when I was doing a lot of work, like physically in the clinic, I would do like pogo hops for... um, three sets of 20 and then pogo like single leg hops. And I wanted like no more than green light pain with those. And then the easier one is pick a really tiny amount of the thing that you're worried about doing or that you've had been trouble with and just do that. And that's it. Then continue your normal workout and next morning, wake up, see how you feel, do a teeny tiny bit more. So if it's uh, for plantar fasciitis with hill pain uh, sorry with pain with running uphill it's like okay well can you jog up a hill for 10 seconds twice like just do that and no matter how if it feels completely fine 
you're still not allowed to do anymore because you have to see how it feels the next day. You don't want to scare yourself off. So you wake up the next day, that was fine. Okay, four times up the hill, 10 seconds, easy pace. Okay, now I know that rung of the ladder is okay. If I'm going to move to the next one, make it a reasonable one, right? Don't don't make the change too big because what you don't want to do is create a load of pain in that area. You know, potentially you have to rest it, but even best case scenario, what you've just done is sensitize your nervous system. It's going to think, he's not listening to me. He's not protecting this area of his body. I'm going to make it more painful so he does. And what we want to do is convince the nervous system that it's okay, that it doesn't have to freak out, that it can tolerate that amount of stress. And we're sort of building a little bit of trust back in that part of our body again. Yeah. And I think a lot of people without, a lot of runners without this level of expertise, like it seems simple when we talk about it, but a lot of people think, oh, I'm ready to do heels again. Oh, like I'm symptom free. I'm ready to do heels. And they'll just do a heel session, which is, you know, just trying to sprint up that rehab ladder and trying to jump 10 steps ahead compared to like the safer approach, like you're describing. Um, and I think it's also, like you say, it's trying to condition the nervous system, but it's also helping psychologically their confidence as well. Like you're talking about. So it's sort of like addressing a whole bunch of things and, if a runner's listening to this and like, oh my God, like how long am I going to be doing, you know, short jogs up a hill if I'm only starting with two by 10 seconds and just a jog, it is going to take forever. There's, um, this is like in one of my core principles, like in one of the first, I think it's episode two of the entire podcast. It was um, hacking the adaptation zone. Like you, and it's all about increasing your frequency to that thing mm. and the more often you do it throughout the week within your adaptation zone the quicker you're going to adapt and so if you do it just a little bit that like you described those two by 10 seconds up a hill and you feel fine the next day you could probably do it the next day you could probably do it four times in the week and quickly adapt to it rather than being like, oh my God, if I do this once a week and progress this once a week, it's going to take me six months to eventually running <laughs> up a hill. Uh, but keep in mind that, you know, they are slow. It is a very, very gradual introduction, but that's the safest thing that we can do. It's the most specific thing we can do. We're trying to run up a hill and we're starting by running up a hill. It just looks like downgraded a lot. But if you do that four times a week, maybe in three weeks, you're running that entire hill. And that might be at 60% of your speed. And then the next time it's 65% or 70% or, you know, working a whole, working your way up, whatever that rehab ladder looks like for you. Um, back to the question, back to Laura's question about tests and those sorts of things. So you mentioned jumping, but more specifically, you mentioned just doing the thing, just doing the task, because that's as specific as we can be. Um, I think I put down, if someone wanted to do uphill stuff um, and let's just say they had knee pain or um, those sorts of things. I, I put in maybe just stair running, just doing like flights of stairs, like running up a flight of stairs if to try and get a little bit of um, propulsion into their, their calf and Achilles just to see what that's like. Um, very controlled. It's maybe like, you know, 15 steps and just doing repeats of that might be something. If it's downhill, maybe running down a flight of stairs um, 
could be something that kind of looks like the thing, but it's in a controlled sort of way. Um, and like I just put like slow volume, like I put as that benchmark 40 minutes of slow flat running might be a test that we do. And if we pass that test, then it's time to sort of introduce to the thing. Um, just my, like I said before, it's just a, a random number that I picked out. Um, any questions about that? Do you think there's any other things that we might, that we haven't covered? With the, the, the example you gave with the stairs, I quite like as well. Like if someone's intolerant to hill training and it's been, especially if it's been a long-term problem or a recurring problem. So you really feel like it's got in their head. Um, because you can have, you know, the more mechanical aspects of the pain, which are just purely from the stress that goes through the tissue. And then you have the more psychosocial ones, which, you know, are more to do with the situation you're in when you feel it. And your example of using like the stairs would be a nice way to kind of like what I was saying earlier about can we can we train this in a novel way? Can we do it in a way that's very similar stress wise, but that is different in terms of the experience in some way? So stairs versus hills are extremely similar, but are distinct. And then the other point you made about the frequency, like I love that. I do that all the time with people. Essentially, what we're doing is the worse the pain is, the more frequently we're doing the thing and the less intensity we're doing it with. So that example of 10 seconds up a hill twice, that presumes that that person has a lot of pain and they've had a lot of trouble with that hills, right? We wouldn't start that conservatively if someone was like, oh yeah, it hurts when I do my hill sprints, you know, the next morning. It's like, okay, well, we need to start you higher up the ladder. So what we want is high frequency, low intensity, so not very stressful. When things are bad, when things are painful and quick to flare up, I call it angry, right? They're just angry. And as they get less angry, so let's say the plantar heel pain, as it gets less angry, it's not as uncomfortable in the morning. You can do, you know, 20 times up the hill in one day, right? Maybe spread out over two little runs around the block. Then we want to increase intensity and reduce frequency. And the goal being to get less and less frequent and more intense. So let's say hill sprints, most people aren't going to do them more than a week, once a week, sorry. So the goal is we're going to get back to once a week, but it's going to be super hard. So we're going to have this kind of transition from, you know, every day, probably tiny amount of hill pseudo walking, gradually over weeks, progressing to sprinting up a hill 10 times you know, in one session. Now, the the amount of time that takes, because you were saying, well, if if we do once a week of progression, add like four hills each time, it's like, well, yeah, it's going to take forever. But then what you're doing there is you're just setting this sort of somewhat arbitrary progression. And what we really want to do is progress at the rate that your body shows it can adapt. So if if you're getting green light pain or orange light pain, we increase the rate of progression. We still do it sensibly, but we increase the rate because we want to try and get back to that our goal, that one session a week really hard, as quickly as reasonable. But we can't just take your progress from one workout to the next because it won't be linear because nothing in biology is linear. So you might find across a certain two weeks in the middle, you make loads of progress. Whereas in the first week, you know, it doesn't feel any better after a week. It feels the same. But then in weeks two and three, you find it gets like 
60% better. And then in the next two weeks, it only gets like 5% better, right? So you won't have a linear progression. So you shouldn't have a linear plan. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I like about this conversation, all the advice that you're giving is this isn't really injury specific. Like hmm. Sandrine and um, Laura, who submitted their questions, they both had plantar heel pain. And this applies to plantar heel pain. This applies to knee pain. This applies to ITV pain. Um, it's being, you know, generic. And to, like when you're talking about the frequency, reducing the frequency eventually as you up the intensity, um, most people will recognize that's sort of what I talk about in regards to just generic rehab. Like if someone has calf pain, we do start if they can tolerate it body weight, single leg calf raises. And, you know, that might be daily or, you know, replace that with, you know, any low load rehab if that's all you can tolerate. We do it sometimes multiple times a day. But then as that injury gets stronger and as we increase the stimulus and increase the strain and um, making it more and more challenging, you need to recover from that and you take longer time to recover. So eventually as that thing becomes really, really heavy and really, really challenging, so does the frequency back off and eventually those three sets of 10 single leg calf raises might turn into really intense, really heavy calf raises that we only have to do twice a week. And so the exact principles do apply, just you know, substitute that calf raise with hill repeats or something like that. Yeah, um, I like to go on to your point that you were just saying about it being any injury. Like there are specific things that, I think that should go with certain types of injuries, certain rehabilitation strategies and certain considerations. But as an underlying principle, I think running rehabilitation should very much emphasize the limitation, not the pathology. So as we were talking there, we weren't, we, we sort of touched back on, oh, this is a plantar heel pain, but we could have just as easy been still talking about a proximal hamstring pain or a IT band pain or whatever. But what what the commonality is, is that we're focusing on the limitation. What is the thing that you can't do? That's what we're going to work on. It doesn't really matter what causes the pain. We need to work on the limitation itself. And if we can increase your capacity to tolerate the stresses that that specific activity causes, then your capacity will increase and your ability to do it will increase and you will no longer be limited and you'll stop going to physio because you're like, I can do this hill repeats. Or I can do my trail runs. Or I can, you know, I can do my sprint intervals, whatever it is, because we're focused on the limitation. And we also, when you're looking at the limitation, you take where you're at. One of the major problems that you touched on in our podcast, which is extremely common among people who attend physiotherapy um, or other rehab is that the, the the progression doesn't happen. You know, as we just talked about there, you can see that things are getting progressively more difficult and more challenging as the weeks pass. And I'd say that's like the primary reason that people don't get better is that they do something, it gets a bit better. You said pretty much exactly this on my show. And then it isn't made harder. And, and it's, it's sort of thinking that doing these same running drills up the hill is going to work. It's like, no, you've got to make them harder. You've got to push it. The body doesn't adapt if it doesn't have to. 
So you have to apply a stimulus that makes your body think, I need to be able to talk, take more stress than I can. So I'm going to reinforce that area. I'm going to make it tougher. And I'm going to desensitize the area. I'm going to make it less sore. The rub is that you've got to do that without freaking it out. If you put too much stress on it, you make it really angry. And then your nervous system gets more sensitive. I don't like that. You're not listening to me. Let's make this area more sore so you stop being so stupid. And finding the balance between those two and then following it as it gets better is really the key to, I'd say, about like 80% of rehab. And then there's some specific things in for most people. There's like one or two little specific things. Yeah, agreed. Um, and I guess following on from that with if we do too much and that increases the pain sensitivity and increases the nervous system vulnerabilities and those sorts of things. Um, what can people do when they are introducing hills and introducing speed? Um, what, what are some strategies that we can put into place to reduce that risk of injury or reduce that risk of a flare up? Um, we might be repeating a few of the things that we've already said, but just as yep. we're <laughs> summarizing some things, let's, let's, yeah, let's dive into it. So you want to do the exact opposite of what I was talking about with my um, running buddy from Ottawa, right? Don't avoid the thing that causes the problem. Make sure you do it and make sure you do it like every week and make sure that you do it in an amount that is the amount that you want to be able to do it. So let's just talk volume. If you want to run 50 kilometers of trails every week, like hover around there, right? Don't drop down to like 10 kilometers or zero for a month or two. You, you want to keep your stress tolerance throughout the year and and if it's hills it's not that you have to do hills every week it's that you want to feel confident that if i go and do hills today i did it recently enough that i know it's going to be fine so that might be like i haven't uh, i can't remember the last time i did it i did one like three weeks ago i did a hill workout and i'm confident if i go and do a hill workout today it's going to feel fine so i've done it recently enough and hard enough that i know i have that capacity but if it had been a long time like if it had been several months, then I'd be like, oh, maybe I'll have some trouble with that. Right? You don't want to get to that state where you haven't done something recently enough. And if you do, you want to reintroduce it slowly. But if you have a, a particular area, particularly if it's been a problem, like a recurring issue, you know, if you've, if you plant a, let's say your Achilles is more likely. My Achilles always bothers me when I do hill sprints. You've got to do hill sprints. My plantar and my proximal hamstring tendon always bothers me when I do sprint intervals. You've got to do them. You've got to do them often to make sure you don't, once you've rehabbed it and gained that capacity, the body won't retain that capacity. It won't waste its energy on it if you're not applying the stimulus that tells it that you need it to. Yeah. Why would you have these goals to run the fastest marathon ever if you have a chink in your armor? And that chink always reveals itself whenever you challenge it in a certain stimulus. Even if your marathon doesn't have hills in it, but you fall to pieces every time you introduce hills, still get good at hills because you're fortifying your armor uh, in every domain. Like I kind of have this vision of I just want to be prepared to tackle anything something throws at me. It might be heavy squats. It might be fast sprints. It might be, you know, whatever that looks like for you and becomes more complicated if you're a triathlete or, you know, it, the more variables that you, you want. But if you're purely, purely sticking to running, any type of stimulus to running, you want to be 
built mm. and resilient in that stimulus. Otherwise, you know, you're going to set yourself up for a little bit of a chink in your armor or vulnerabilities here and there in your armor when you have to introduce hills or maybe introduce speed that's, um, you know, you could get really good at speed or adapt to speed safer by doing hills or like, you know, just a whole bunch of different varieties. You want you want to be able to stimulate the, the body and you want to be able to withstand all of those things. Um, so very good. I think if we're still on the topic of strategies to reduce your risk of um, flaring up or causing a future flare up, uh, what we've talked about with starting at a point that you can do, gradually building things up from there, introducing one variable at a time, hills become a little bit more complex because you've got the, the, the incline of that hill, how fast you go up that hill, how many repeats, how many, what the duration is per repeat, all of those things are um, a whole bunch of different variables. So what I would say to people is write it down on paper because a lot mm. of people say, oh, let me just see. Last time I ran three repeats and I was fine. Uh, let me just see how I go today. And they sort of just on a whim to say, let me just see how I go today by doing a little bit more. But sometimes that little bit more is a bit too much. And if it's written down on paper, it, it, it kind of like makes sense on paper a little bit more than just going out and seeing how you feel. So it doesn't have to be on paper. It can be on a spreadsheet for those who, you know, <laughs> who have like computers. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, once you can look at all of those progressions, all those rungs on the ladder, in front of you, it sort of can make a bit more sense. You can sort of like plan out what the gaps might be, what variables stay consistent, what variables change. Like any client that's worked with me, they know I love progression charts. It's like on my spreadsheet, mm. they're like, oh, I want to get good at jumping. I'm like, great, let's build out a, a progression chart. Let's start with um, jump rope. Let's start with 15 seconds, five times, 30 seconds rest. And, let's, and then I'll create like six more steps from there. We should do that with everything. If you, especially mm. if you're coming back from injury, we should have those sort of things. A walk run program. That's why it's so good because it's on paper. It's got every phase. You know, you're successful with phase one. Let's do phase two. Um, we should do that with a lot of our variables, and just makes it safer, makes you accountable, makes you stick to that thing. You're not going to do more than phase five if you're up to phase five, and um, yeah, it can significantly reduce your risk of injury. You know, I think that a lot of what good rehab professionals do is just make people do that. You know, yeah. quantify exactly what you can do, make a plan for this week, come back next week and tell me what you did. And and that can be and then that can be like 90% of the value of working with a rehab professional is that they help you. And I, I really do look at it as a as a joint program um project. Like it's like, how do we figure out what you can do? What's a reasonable plan that's going to get it better? Okay, how do we hold you accountable and make sure you did it and that you made the adjustments that were needed based on the criteria that we set out? And, you know, I, I did think of something I wanted to just elaborate on what you were saying about the chink in the armor. And I think it made me want to talk about a, a fundamental misunderstanding that I think happens a lot and is to blame for a lot of problems that people run into in this scenario where they avoid things that have caused them trouble, which is extremely common. And I think it comes from an understanding that the body is like a mechanical system. It's like a car, right? So if, you, if your wheels are out of alignment, the, the one wheel 
like the tire is going to wear out quicker. And if you don't fix the alignment, then that tire is going to keep wearing out, right? And it's just a, it's just going to respond. It's going to degrade the more mechanical stress you put on it. That's a mechanical system, and they're very easy to understand. And humans aren't like that at all. We are biological systems, and we will adapt to stresses if the stress is a within our capacity or just a little above it. We will break down if we the stress that we are under is far above our ca- adaptive capacity. And we will get weaker if the stress is far below. The car tire doesn't do any of that. Like the more stress you put on it, the more it wears out. Right? It doesn't get stronger if you put the right amount on. It, it doesn't get weaker if you don't put any stress on it. And this this distinction between like biological and mechanical systems is thinking about your body as a biological system that you need to train that resilience in so that you have the capacity to do the things that you want to do is I'd say one of the main reasons that people have recurring issues is because they they protect it because they don't want to make it worse. They don't want to damage it, which is totally understandable. But when you see the difference between a biological and a mechanical system, you can see that it doesn't make sense. You have to toughen that area up if it's not tolerating the stresses that you're exposing it to. Yeah, well done. Very well explained. Um, I love analogies to sort of get the message across. And yeah, that that was great. And a good way to to summarize um, and sum up the the topic. So um, for those who aren't familiar with you or haven't don't know much about the podcast or the stuff you do, uh, where can people go to find out more? I think if you like you said, if you like podcasts, you'll enjoy mine. We, you and I, Brody, have actually shared a number of guests and we yeah. discuss similar topics, but come at it from slightly different perspectives, which I think it makes her um, that verse. Uh, what's the word? That variety helps people understand things if they hear them in different ways. And so that's called the Adaptive Zone, and it's on all the podcast players. Uh, so just search for that. And if I'm, I'm reasonably active on social media, so um, Instagram and Facebook, it's at Matthew Boyd Physio. So you can find me there and come and say hello. I'd certainly like to meet anyone who's interested to talk about this stuff, because as you can tell, I could talk about it for very long periods. And then I have a website as well, matthewboydphysio.com, where all the podcasts and I do write blogs and stuff sometimes. And I've got a, you know, I've got a running fundamentals course would be a good resource for people actually. So what, what I did there was I took some of the key things that I think every runner should know from like, you know, someone who's just getting into it to someone who's quite advanced. And I just thought, well, if I make a video, a podcast and an article, explaining all of these and just put them in a little course and give it away for free. That's a helpful thing for people to to get a good lay of the fundamentals of running in terms of like performance and injuries. Like what are the things that are of significant consideration? So um, if you go to my website, suppose I can give you a link in the show notes, but uh, you'll see a link at the top to courses and it's just called the Running Fundamentals course. Yep, I'll make it easy. All those links, uh, Instagram, Facebook, website, and to the course will all be in the the show notes. So um, yeah, highly recommend people go check out the podcast as well. So Matthew, thank you very much for coming on. This was an excellent conversation and um, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, buddy.
If you are struggling to overcome an injury, you can jump on a free 20 minute injury chat with me, which you can book through my calendar in the show notes. While you're in the show notes, elevate your running IQ by jumping onto my free email list so you can receive material to help rehab your injury, lower your injury risk, and increase your performance. If emails aren't for you, consider my Facebook group, Instagram, and YouTube channels. And remember, each insight you get from these resources brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough.